This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org ut. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. If you're here for the first time or for the 50th time, I want you to know that uh, I'm really glad that you're here. And let me tell you a little bit about what RUF is. So RUF is a community of students, and we're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbors, because what we believe is that Jesus is the embodiment of love. And so what we do is this. Each and every week, we gather in large group here on Wednesday night. We gather in small groups throughout the week. We gather in one-on-one over coffee or over lunch in order to first remind one another of how much God loves us and then to rest in his love. And so what I want you to do this and every week more than anything else is to rest and know that REF is not an organization that is trying to use you or get you to do more things, but to actually rest in all the things that Jesus has already done for you. So I want you to know that no matter who you are or, or what you've done or what you believe, you really are welcome here at RUF. Okay, and uh, if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been asking this question together, and the question is, who is Christ for us? Who is Christ? And not who do I want Christ to be, or, or which sort of vision or version of Christ is my favorite, but who is Jesus actually? And tonight, I want us to see that Christ is our teacher. He is our teacher. So from the time I was 15 until the time I was 21, if you had asked me over the course of those six or seven years what I wanted to do with my life, I would have told you that I wanted to be a high school teacher. And the reason is because of a woman named Mrs. Herring. So uh, Mrs. Herring was my English teacher in high school, and to this day she remains the most wonderful woman I have ever met. Uh, first of all, uh, she made books come alive for me. I mean, she made reading books this some, something that uh, once felt like a chore or a task, but then became, it almost became like, reading a book became like uh, eating a meal, where you sort of tasted all these different flavors and you wanted it to last forever. And uh, Miss Herring was also this incredibly gracious teacher and woman. She had this thing where you basically, once every semester, got a get-out-of-jail-free card, where once a semester, for any reason... You could basically turn in an assignment late or, or kind of push back a deadline for any reason at all, once, once every semester. Get out jail free card. Some of you wish you had that this week. Um, she was also this sort of larger-than-life woman. I mean, she lived in this farmhouse about 45 minutes outside of Memphis. And, I mean, she raised four beautiful daughters who all graduated from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And she also kept bees. I mean, the woman was a beekeeper. And one Saturday morning, she invited five of my friends to go out and sort of help her clean out and organize her house a little bit. And uh, for our reward, she made us, to this day, the best breakfast that I've ever eaten, in which she made homemade biscuits, and uh, she served those biscuits with honey from the backyard, and she fried bacon, she made sausage, and we had all the breakfast things. So from the age of 15 until the age of 21, who did I want it to be? I wanted to be Miss Herring. And, and even though I decided to eventually become a pastor to this day in many ways, I still want to be Miss Herring. And the point is, friends, that, like, that a good teacher has the power and the ability to sort of set the course of your life. They have the ability to set the course of your life. And tonight I want us to look at Christ, our teacher, Because if you've been around REF at all, you know that Jesus is not primarily a teacher. 
He is much more than a teacher, and yet he is still a teacher. So tonight, I want us to ask this question. What do we do when Jesus tells us what to do? What do we do when Jesus tells us what to do? What do we do with his teachings? Three points tonight. I want to see that tonight, Jesus invites us to, first of all, trust his word. Second, hear his word. And then finally, do his word. So trusting, hearing, and doing. Point one, trusting. So turning back to the Matthew passage that Brendan read for us, we see again that our passage tonight is about what do you do when Jesus tells you what to do? Basically, what is happening in our passage is that Jesus has come to the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And many of you know this sermon. I mean, it's the most famous sermon that Jesus ever told, that really anyone has ever told. Uh, it's about, it's about 2,500 words. It goes all the way from chapter 5 of Matthew to chapter 7. And it's pages and pages of Jesus telling us what to do. And in the sermon, he says such famous things as love your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, he says, judge not lest you be judged. He says, if someone hits you, you should turn the other cheek. He says, don't get divorced except in cases of infidelity. I mean, he has teaching after teaching after teaching. And here in our passage, he reaches the end of the sermon. And he says, there are really only two types of people in the world. There are those who make his teachings the foundation of their life. And there are those who do not. And the first are wise. They're like those who build their house on the rock. And the second are foolish. They're like those who build their house on sand. And so Jesus' point to us is obvious. Choose wisely. Be careful what you choose. And yet, we know from experience that, obviously, I mean, it isn't that easy. That it isn't easy to simply uh, build our house on rock, as it were. Because all of us spend most of our lives, including me, resisting Jesus and, and running away from him and building our lives upon bad foundations. So there's this retirement community in Florida called the Villages. And it's the largest retirement community in the world, and its sort of nickname is the Disney World for Seniors. Sounds very cool. Um, but the Villages is known for being basically incredibly leisurely and incredibly safe. And so people basically every year, thousands and thousands of people are moving to this community in Florida. There's basically no crime. Everyone rides golf carts around. It's the safest part of Florida for hurricanes. And yet there's only one problem, and it is sinkholes. Basically, in this community, there's sinkholes everywhere. It's in this part of Florida known as Sinkhole Alley, where more sinkholes open up here than anywhere else in the world. And if you don't know what a sinkhole is, if you want to have nightmares and not be able to sleep tonight, you should go home and watch videos of sinkholes on YouTube. I mean, they are terrifying. But basically, this cavity forms under the earth, and eventually uh, the cavity is so wide under the soil that all the soil at the top here gives way. It's absolutely terrifying. Anyway, uh, sinkholes are happening more and more in this area of Florida. In 2017, there were 32 reported sinkholes. In 2013, a man named Jeffrey Bush was sleeping in his bedroom one night when suddenly a sinkhole formed underneath his house and, and it just sucked him underground, 20 feet underground, and they never found him. Again, they're terrifying. So why are they happening more and more in Florida? Some of you are like, why is he telling us this? Okay, why are they happening more and more in Florida? Well, one is because of the foundation. Florida, all the sandy soil in Florida uh, combined with this limestone layer underneath is like a disastrous recipe for sinkholes. 
But the second and biggest problem right now is actually all of the construction. The, the more and more that people build houses and build golf courses and build country clubs in the villages, the more and more that the ground sort of loses and sways and moves and there are more and more sinkholes. And yet people continue to move to the villages and build houses and build, and build country clubs. The more they build, the more sinkholes there are. And the more sinkholes there are, they just keep building anyway. And Jesus says tonight that really we're all like those people in Florida. I mean, that all of us spend our lives building foundation, building our houses on foundations that can never hold us. And for some of us, uh, we spend all of our lives sort of building our popularity. We talked about this the first week, the first large group. And when we spend our whole college experience basically trying to get into the right crowd and into the inner ring. And so we start by getting into the group or the sorority or whatever it is. And then we try and get into the sorority within the sorority. And then the sorority within that. And it's on and on and on. For others of us, college is about building success. College is sort of this means to an end in which, in which if I'm successful in McCombs, I'll get a successful internship, and that'll set me up for a successful life. And I'll have a big yard in, in Highland Park or Alamo Heights, wherever it is, and maybe I'll have a lake house too, and I'll own a boat. And other, other people will sort of whisper about me and be like, he's successful, right? And so this is what we spend college doing. These are our foundations. And yet tonight, Jesus, friends, is very, very clear. He says, if you spend your life building these houses, they will crumble. I mean, listen how ominous the Sermon on the Mount ends. 2,500 words, and this is how it ends. And the house fell, and great was the fall of it. And so again, it would be easy to just say tonight, choose wisely. Choose the right foundation. Choose wisely. Listen to Jesus and not the world. But really, we need to go deeper than that. We need to go deeper. We need to ask why. I mean, why do we spend our lives building upon sand and not rock? Why do we not obey Jesus? And at the core, I believe it's because we don't trust him. We don't believe that following Jesus will actually bring us life. And that obeying him will actually lead to life. I mean, we tend to think of God as a taker and not a giver. We think of him as a taker and not a giver. He's constantly sort of taking things from us. He, if, I have to, if I follow him more and more, he'll take away my joy or he'll take away my freedom and my happiness. And it'll get more and more constricting. My life will get more and more boring. And ultimately, all of this is rooted in the belief that we actually know better than God. That we know what is best for our lives and that we know what is good for us. But I want us to see two reasons tonight that I believe we can actually trust that Jesus knows what is best for us. And the first is that Jesus is good. He's good. Whether you listen to someone and whether you follow someone's commands should depend on their character and the type of person that they are. I mean, the reason that I wanted to be Miss Herring is because I saw her character. I mean, I saw the kind of wife that she was and the kind of mother that she was. I mean, I saw, I saw her beauty and, and her kindness and her generosity. And friends, if you look at Jesus, he's the kindest, most generous, most sacrificial person to ever exist. I mean, he died for you. 
And so you can trust him. When he says do something, you can trust that he knows what's best for you. So when he says, I promise you, if you obey me, it will lead to a good life, you can believe him. First of all, he's good. But second of all, he's powerful. You should trust him because he's powerful. I mean, look back at the passage. Notice that in our passage, the reason that one house falls and the other house stands is only because one of them is able to withstand the storm. I mean, the storm comes. The rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew. They beat on that house, and it did not fall. I mean, friends, what Jesus is saying is my teachings have the ability to sustain you even in the worst storms of your life. Depression, they can withstand you. Anxiety, they can withstand you. Addiction, they can withstand you. Your regret, they can withstand you. So when Jesus says even hard things, don't get divorced, don't lust, pray for your enemies, You can trust this voice because Jesus' voice is God's voice. I mean, that voice that is telling you what to do is the same voice that said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the same voice that said, let there be a world, and there was a world. Let there be stars, and there were galaxies. It's the same voice. It's powerful. And in our passage, we see that the crowds are amazed at Jesus' teaching because of how powerful it is. I mean, what do they say? He taught as one who had authority. And so I want you to ask yourself tonight, whose voice is authoritative in your life? Everyone has a voice. Everyone has a teacher, someone or something that they follow. So ask yourself, who is that voice? And when you come up with the image of the person in your mind, ask yourself, are they good? I mean, are they dependable and trustworthy? Do they really know what's best for me? But then secondly, how much power do they really have? I mean, some of us give people so much power over our life. So ask yourself, that person who controls you, how much power do they really have? I mean, when they speak, does the earth move? I mean, when they speak, can they part the Red Sea? When they speak, can they sustain you in the worst storm of your life? Jesus is saying he can. So... To follow Christ our teacher, we must first trust him, that he's really for us and he really knows what's best for us, even when he tells us things that are hard. But second, in order to, to, to follow Christ our teacher, we must also hear from him. We must hear him. So point to hearing. Going back to the text for just a second, in verse 24, we see again Jesus saying, whoever hears these words of mine and does them. So we must hear Jesus. Question. How many of you have ever been to a casino? Don't answer that question, actually. Okay, I've been to casinos before a couple of times, and casinos are one of the worst and most miserable and disorienting places in the world. Uh, Mary Henley knows that Ole Miss, you go to casinos sometimes. They're terrible. All right, first of all, casinos are really dark. She probably never went to a casino. It's just me. All right, so first of all, casinos are really dark. Um, In casinos, they purposely don't have windows, so you never know what time it is, and so you'll lose track of time, and you'll just stay longer in the casino. But then second of all, they're they're flashy. They're constantly flashes of light flashing in your face from the slot machines and the roulette tables and all these different things just flashing at you. 
But then third, they're incredibly noisy because these same machines are constantly blaring songs at you. So the slot machine has a song and the roulette table has a song and there's just song after song after song. And they're all crying out for your attention, saying, look at me, listen to me. And the author Anne Lamott, who I love, says that living in the modern world today is like living inside a casino. In which you constantly have noise and lights just flashing in your face all the time. You constantly have things clamoring for your attention, saying, listen to me and look at me. And friends, in a world like this, it is really hard to hear Jesus. It's really hard to hear him. So what can we do? I mean, what can we do even starting tonight to actually hear from God? The first thing we can do is we can read the Bible. And let me be very clear about this, okay? Do not read the Bible more so that God will love you more. Because it doesn't work like that. I mean, God cannot love you any more or less than he does right now. You could read the whole Bible in like the next week. He wouldn't love you anymore. But do read the Bible so that you can hear from God and you can hear from him more. I mean, think for a second about your uh, middle school dating relationships for a second. All right. So do you remember back in middle school when you were like dating someone? Uh, except the only problem was that you like never even talked to them or hung out with them. And so then your parents were like, are y'all dating? Y'all don't really seem like you hang out ever. And you're like, no, like we're dating. And they're like, okay. So like you're dating, but you never talk and you don't actually have a relationship. And it strikes me that often this is how we are with God. I mean, we say, yeah, like I'm cool with God. And it's like, okay, uh, do you talk to him? And you're like, not really. And you're like, do you ever listen to him? Like, no. I mean, it's hard to get to know someone without listening to them. And so when you read the Bible, that is what you're doing. You're listening to God. It's a relationship. And you're saying to God, I want to know you more and I want to hear from you. So that's the first thing we can do together. But secondly, I want to invite you uh, to think about silence in your life. The other day I met with this student, and this student just felt different to me. I mean, there was just something about him. I mean, uh, you know, he's a sophomore in college. I mean, he's in McCombs. You know, he's busy. But he also just seemed, like, very relaxed and just sort of at peace and just kind of chill. And, and I, I, as I got to know him better and asked him questions, um, you know, I asked him what he, what he does sort of with his free time. Like, what do you do when you aren't studying or when you aren't going to parties? And he said, I like to go on hikes by myself. I was like, that's cool. I don't usually get that, but that's awesome, all right? And so he says, you know, I'm, and so I'm like, do you like to listen to things? Like, I mean, surely, like, if you go on long hikes, you're, like, listening to, like, podcasts, or, like, music. And he's like, no, I just go on hikes by myself. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I mean, this is a man, this is a student who has embraced silence in his life. I mean, he just knows college is like a casino. And sometimes you have to get away and just have stillness and have silence. And friends, really, silence is just another form of prayer. Because when we think about prayer, we think about talking to God, but prayer is a conversation in which, in which we should first listen to God and then answer and respond to him. So it's a two-way conversation, and silence is just one, it's one part of the conversation. Silence and prayer go hand in hand. And so I want you to think about your life and ask yourself, is there ever a time in your life where there's no noise? 
I mean, friends, I beg you to just carve out even a small space, five minutes a day in your life where there's no noise. And you can just try and listen to God and see what he might have to speak to you. Read one passage of scripture. I mean, read one verse of scripture and say, God, please speak to me through the scripture. Start small. So the point is, we cannot expect to learn from Christ our teacher if we never carve out space to actually hear him and listen to him. So finally, point three, I want us to talk about uh, doing Christ's words. How do we do them? Because we see that Jesus is very clear that it is not enough to hear his words. We must also do them. I mean, look again one more time in verse 24. He says, the wise person is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. And this is the hard part. Because let's be honest. I mean, most of the time, even when we hear God's words to us, it's hard to do them. I mean, even if we trust Jesus, even if we read our Bible, even if we know the things we're supposed to do as a Christian, it's just really hard to have the ability to carry them out. I mean, the Apostle Paul, who wrote like half of the New Testament, by all accounts a good Christian, I mean, he says this in the book of Romans. He says, the things that I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I'm not supposed to do, these are the things I keep on doing. I mean, if Paul struggles to do the things he's supposed to do, surely we do as well. So how do we begin to do the things that Jesus teaches us to do? I don't think it's the way we usually think. Because what we usually think is to become a more obedient person, we just need to try harder. We sort of just need to to try harder and grit our teeth and sort of hammer Scripture more into our heads, and then we'll kind of become more obedient. But I really think it's something different. There's this counselor named Edwin Friedman, and he tells this story. Uh, Once upon a time, he knew this man, and this is a true story, and and this man was uh, married to this woman, and they'd been married for a long time. I mean, they had kids together. But one day, the woman comes in, his wife, and says to him, I'm out. I'm getting a divorce, and in fact, um, I'm having an affair, and uh, me and my new lover are going on a trip to Hawaii. And we're leaving tomorrow, I'm going to be gone for the next week, and when we get back, we can figure everything out, and we can figure out, you know, the divorce proceedings, what we're going to do with the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And the husband basically just says to her, okay, have fun, like, have a great time in Hawaii, we'll see you when you get back. And the woman's kind of like, is that all? He's like, yeah. He's like, okay. And so she leaves. So uh, six days later, she comes back, and uh, she basically says, the trip was miserable. It was so miserable. I'm so sorry. Please take me back. And he does. But why did she come back? I mean, why was the trip so miserable? And why eventually did she come back? Well, it's because in the moment of her unfaithfulness, And in the moment of her law-breaking, the moment she announced she was leaving, the husband met her with total grace. He met her with disarming grace. She didn't know what to do with it. He met her with unconditional love. I mean, he could have told her, like, how bad she was, how much she was ruining his life, how much she was ruining the kid's life. But, I mean, she probably already knew these things. And, I mean, him giving her a lecture wasn't going to change her mind at that point. So he just met her with grace. And that grace actually changed her. She saw that nothing could compare with her husband's love. And so she actually became a faithful spouse again. 
law, a lecture, couldn't make her more faithful. But grace could. But think about it like this. Uh, There's a pastor who tells another true story about when he was 16, uh, his dad owned a convertible, and his dad let him take uh, his friends out in the convertible one one night. And uh, so what happened? Of course, he wrecked his dad's convertible. And so it's kind of like Ferris Bueller's day off. Uh, You know, he wrecks his dad's convertible, and then he goes to tell his father, and, you know, he's crying, feels so ashamed. But instead of shaming him or giving him a lecture, his father just gives him a hug and cries with him. And says how horrible it must have been to be in the accident. And then the next morning, the dad goes into his son's room and says, hey, let's go out and buy a new car together. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. But I mean, how do you think that moment actually changed the son? I mean, it it created this incredible intimacy between him and his father. It's the type of relationship where the son probably never wanted to disobey or get in trouble ever again. Or think about this. Uh, one night a son goes into his dad's study and says, Dad, I want you to die. And I want you to die because you're rich and I want my inheritance money that is coming to me. I'd rather just have it now. And so instead of saying to the boy, uh, you're a complete idiot and you're selfish, and how could you say something like that when I've given you everything you could ever want and I've done everything for you? Instead, the dad just says, okay, here's the money. And so he gives the son his money, he lets him leave, and the son moves to Mexico, and he goes to Mexico and he lives it up. I mean, booze, sex, drugs, partying, all of it. But then after a few years, the money runs out, and what does the son do? He comes back home. And he returns to the father, and uh, they dance together, and they celebrate, and uh, the son just longs to be close to the father for his rest of his, his life and to obey him. And I mean, that last one, of course, is from the Bible. I mean, it's the story of the prodigal son, and it is about God. And the point is, friends, with all these stories, is that Jesus in the Bible is very clear about the rules. It says there are things you should do if you want to have life. The only question is, what actually motivates us to follow these rules and to be obedient? See, for us, I mean, we try and change people through lectures, and through our demands, and by shaming them, and, and controlling them, and telling us how much they've, they've, they've failed us, or how they failed to live up to our rules. And, and that's how people have tried to change you, I, I, I'm willing to imagine, 98% of your life. But Jesus knows that the only thing that can change us and actually make us obedient long-term is grace. It's the only thing that can do it. And so Jesus is the husband in the first story. And he is the dad in the second story. And he's the father in the third story. It's all Jesus. I mean, Jesus knows we're dumb. I mean, he knows we're stupid. He knows we're like the village's people in Florida building our houses upon foundations of sand. And yet, he meets us with grace. From Jesus, when we disobey, we expect a lecture. We expect more rules. Get in line. Get in shape. But then we experience his grace. And y'all, grace is like a total shock to your system. When you're expecting a lecture and you get grace, you never forget it. It washes over you and it changes the way you live. And what happens? After you have that shock to your system, I mean, you actually obey. We think grace is going to make us like, you know, if you let people off the hook, they're just going to get worse and they're going to abuse your grace. But that's never what happens. 
You give someone grace, it actually changes them, and they become an obedient person. And for the first time, we begin to think, maybe Jesus, our teacher, actually knows what's best for us. So you can trust him, listen to him, and then do what he says, but know that you can only do it through grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this passage. Uh, it's kind of sobering. Uh, it's, it's sort of a harsh warning, and yet uh, we know that we cannot live without you, and we cannot live without your help. And so we ask that uh, you would give us the wisdom to build our houses upon rock and listen to you. But please, more than anything, just give us your embrace of grace that we might live. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.